Right, hello everyone. Uh, my name is John Ireland. I'm a financial services partner in Norton Rose Fulbright Sydney office. Welcome to the second in our series of global podcasts covering conduct related issues. In this podcast, I am joined by financial services colleagues around the world who will be providing us with an update on cross-border funds distribution. So what we'll be looking through is a, a few questions covering a number of related topics. Um, firstly, it'll be trends and in industry developments. We'll also be having a look at uh, a couple of key regulatory issues impacting on cross-border funds distribution. Cast a few words around what the marketing rules look like in the relevant jurisdictions, covering also potentially SG considerations that might need to be taken into account, and then rounding off with what we might think crystal ball gazing towards 2023, what uh, the year ahead holds for cross-border funds distribution. So to kick off the session, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague from Hong Kong, uh, Atelka Bogardi. And together, we'll be covering the position in Australia and Hong Kong. So, Etelka, great to have you with us. Hi, John. So, just in terms of where we're starting on trends and in industry developments, what are you seeing in Hong Kong as regards cross-border funds distribution? Yeah, thanks, thanks, John, and great, great to be on the podcast. A couple of things to mention here um, from, from Hong Kong. So, traditionally... Retail banks have dominated the sale and distribution of fund products in Hong Kong. And this has not always been the most attractive value proposition from, from the retail investor's perspective. Um, so with the, the advent of COVID and also a growing demand for, for wealth management products from sort of middle-class retail investors, this really contributed to, to the rise of digital wealth platforms operated by either licensed securities brokers or asset managers in the last few years. These platforms invest really heavily in the customer journey and experience, and there's a real emphasis on, on easy and convenient transactions and, and also trying to lower subscription fees. Um, some of these platforms are also powered by big data analytics and AI, and the so-called robo-advisors, um, which provide investment recommendations to investors. And this is uh, quite an appealing proposition to self-managed investors, especially younger generation who are really adept at using mobiles for, for everything in their lives. And this is really starting to disrupt traditional fund distribution channels in, in Hong Kong. The other point really is um, that in the last few years, the securities regulator, the SFC, has entered into a number of mutual recognition of fund arrangement schemes um, with both mainland China, but also with overseas financial regulators to enable funds authorized or registered with regulators in those jurisdictions to enjoy a more streamlined authorization process for offering uh, these funds to the public in Hong Kong and vice versa. Um, unlike in Europe, for example, we don't have a passporting arrangement between Hong Kong and, and other jurisdictions. So this is really seeing Hong Kong expand, expand this MRF network in Asia to enable more investment channels and choices for investors. Yeah, that's that's really interesting what you say about the the passporting. That's certainly a theme that um, a bit 
coming to in relation to Australia um, a little bit later on. Uh, I mean, certainly in terms of trends and industry developments from an Australian perspective, I guess we're also seeing a common theme across uh, wealth managers and platforms there. Uh, there certainly has been a, an uptick that we've noticed in um, those sorts of intermediaries coming to market to support uh, the high net wealth and, and middle market space and in terms of access to offshore funds. And that's been a bit of a shift away um, in, in a way because previously that really has been more of a preserve for the larger financial institutions, including the uh, large institutional funds and, and pension or super funds. Um, I guess the other thing we're seeing in industry developments is a bit of a rise of other types of intermediaries. So this would be resolving the, the gap in um, uh, the market, which has come from the lapse of the sufficient equivalence relief that our regulator ASIC was offering um, to enable offshore managers access the market. And, and so with that sufficient equivalence relief no, no longer being available, intermediaries or, or third-party license holders are offering different types of solutions for, for offshore managers and funds looking to enter the market for the first time. So, so that could continue for a little while. Um, so in terms of maybe shifting and segueing into that regulatory space, um, Telco, I'm interested in Hong Kong in terms of what you're seeing as maybe the, the top one or two regulatory issues um, that are relevant in this context. Yeah, thanks, John. I mean, we, we'll talk about the, the regulatory framework and the marketing issues in a bit, as you mentioned at the beginning. But again, this is uh, where the online piece comes in. It's been a real focus. So the popularity of, of these types of online platforms for, for fund distribution or wealth management product distribution has really caught the SFC's attention in recent years. Um, they've recently issued guidelines um, to regulate the conduct of platform operators and online distribution practices. In August 2022, they published a report which essentially details some of the regulatory compliance issues identified from these online platforms. So defective client onboarding procedures, which are all online, insufficient product due diligence, uh, failure to observe selling restrictions applicable to specific products, so private funds or complex products or virtual asset related products, and inadequate risk profiling of clients. So we, we will expect the SFC to really zero in on, on how these these funds are sold or marketed in the online space in, in the future as well. Yeah, thanks very much for that. I mean, it's, um, you know, from the, the Australian regulator perspective, ASIC um, is, is in the throes of um, working through the, the proposed new regime for, for licensing for, for marketing and distribution. The uh, the reversal effectively of the the previous foreign AFS licensing um, framework by um, uh, action through um, federal government channels uh, and the uh, and the budget last year really did um, throw um, to the winds that that previous regime that was coming through. So now what we're really seeing, I guess, in terms of regulatory issues, is just this uncertainty continuing around timing for the new set of rules. We did have them released in um, discussion in canvassing form for, for, for comment almost a year ago. It was uh, December last year. Um, and really since then, it's been somewhat um, caught up with uh, the, the election, the change of the federal government. And, and, and so the, 
the consequence of that is the um, the previous expiry date, which was to be the end of March next year, has been pushed back to 2024, the end of March. Then, so so really, we do see a sort of continuing degree of uncertainty. In the meantime, foreign managers are just having to look at the, you know, the new, um, the new, you know, options that might be available to them. Um, in terms of the the marketing rules themselves, there maybe we can if we can just delve into a little bit more detail on those. And um, what does that look like from a Hong Kong perspective, Atalga? Yeah, sure, John. So there's a couple of things. So there's the licensing regime that we always need to look at because generally the marketing of funds in Hong Kong is is a regulated activity, is considered to be a dealing activity. And so you need to be licensed or registered with the SFC if you're carrying that out by way of business in Hong Kong. But also fund distribution activity carried on from outside Hong Kong but where this service is actively marketing this to the public in Hong Kong, this would also trigger a licensing requirement, bringing an offshore party potentially onshore. The second regime we need to always look at is the the product authorization regime and the financial promotions regime. So essentially, a retail fund has to be authorized by the SFC uh, unless an exemption applies. under uh, and there's two relevant regimes here so there's the prospectus regime under the company's legislation and the financial promotions regime under the securities legislation the securities legislation covers marketing of all types of funds so that would also cover funds in the form of partnerships whereas the company's legislation covers only interests in funds structured as as corporates um there are again exemptions from the authorization requirements. So the, the most widely relied on is the one made to professional investors only. Yeah, that's great. There's a, there's clearly some commonality across the, the different jurisdictions there. I mean, the 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 licensing rules first first and foremost in from uh, the Australian perspective, as I've mentioned, they're in flux, but um very relevant. Um I should say, though, that um, there are a, a range of exemptions through the Corporations Act and Corporations Regulations that affect uh, licensable activities. And so they, they can be relevant for, for certain types of marketing. And so it is it is relevant to always you know, go back to basics and have a look at those um, prior to examining the, the future state. So licensing is one. Um, we also have to deal with disclosure and happily uh, from the perspective of offer documents, including prospectuses and um, uh, private placement memoranda for offshore funds. Those rules are, are relatively settled and have been for some time. So um, ostensibly um, with the, uh, the the basic remit for offers into Australia being on a private placement basis to wholesale or institutional investors, those offer documents can be ostensibly the offer documents for the fund from the home jurisdiction, but with appropriate selling restrictions included in them uh, to suit the Australian requirements. So so relatively um, flexible on that count. It's worth mentioning just to um, uh, pick out of that point that um, it generally is not possible to um, distribute to retail um, markets in Australia or offshore funds. I say generally speaking because there's the, the the possibility under the Asian Region Funds Passport. Notwithstanding that, that's been um, to a degree a work in progress. So um, 
the the final plank really on um, wholesale marketing then is in relation to foreign company registration. So uh, this kicks in in, in a, a similar kind of legal basis to licensing in the nature that if a, a, a manager is carrying on business in this jurisdiction, that um, can trigger foreign company registration requirements, which is more administrative in nature, but does carry some ongoing obligations. So a brief canter through there along the, the main planks. Um, Slight shift of gears now, and ESG, and so much the flavour of the day. What are what are the ESG considerations that might need to be taken into account for a, from a from a Hong Kong distribution angle? Yeah, th thanks, John. I mean, as a more generic comment, I'd say that you know Hong Kong is sort of playing catch up. It's catching up fast, but uh, we're not as uh, advanced yet as I would say, for example, our European colleagues are. In, in, in some of these matters. So we're in the process of developing our ESG regulatory framework, and we've had a few uh, relevant circulars released in the past two or three years in this space. Um, at the moment, the guidance uh, really applies to locally licensed fund managers and, and SFC authorized funds only, uh, and center around topics such as risk management um, and disclosure. Um, so in relation to so when we're talking specifically fund distribution, let's say of, of, of overseas funds, for example, the locally licensed distributors or investment managers who, who market the overseas ESG funds into Hong Kong, obviously will need to conduct appropriate product due diligence to guard against greenwashing or false advertising and these types of issues. So in that sense, it, it is very relevant already as well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the catch-up. I think we're probably fair to say in catch-up mode in Australia too, from an ESG perspective. Um, the, the, the Much of the, the recent regulatory movements around that have been in the retail space. So ASIC released... Um, uh, not too long ago, a new information sheet which um, addresses sustainability-linked investments and, and and principally focusing around disclosure, um, not ostensibly new law per se, but an elaboration of existing legal principles around misleading and deceptive conduct. Now that that informs largely retail disclosure. So as I mentioned before, um, when we're focusing on cross-border funds distribution into Australia, that's that's essentially the wholesale space. Um, it is though relevant because um, there can be different structures that are used to access the market. And so thinking more broadly, some of these regulatory settings will inform the general approach taken um, for marketing. And so to the extent that um, offshore issuers uh, are looking to to, broad, to broaden and actually set up product um, in Australia, perhaps as a feeder fund or otherwise, um, appreciating that that's not true cross-border. But in that sense, they, they may well be looking to access uh, retail money, and this will then be relevant to them. Um, what I would say is, notwithstanding the, the regulatory position, which is evolving, um, certainly the, from an institutional-led angle and bearing in mind the um, substantial commitments to net zero that have been made 
particularly by the superannuation funds, this really is driving a conversation with respect to allocations to uh, to offshore um, either co-investments or, or direct pooled investments. And so we're, we're absolutely seeing uh, negotiated terms for those sorts of investments, incorporating commitments to assist on reporting and, and meeting the, you know, potentially even rebalancing commitments that these very large funds in Australia will need to need to be adhering to. Uh, so uh, it's almost a private led solution and, and thematic in that sense. So um, last but not least, looking ahead, let's get get out the crystal ball and have a think about 2023. Um, what's on the horizon from uh, from Hong Kong? It's yeah, so I think for, for, for Hong Kong, I think Greater Bay Area and Wealth Management Connect will, will continue to be the sort of big developing theme. So for the uninitiated, the Wealth Management Connect um, was launched in 2021 and essentially allows uh, residents in Hong Kong and the Greater Bay Area, i.e. Uh, in mainland China, to invest in wealth management products distributed by financial institutions in each other's markets through essentially a clo closed-loop funds flow channel established between the respective banking systems. So that means that individual investors can open cross-border investment accounts directly. Um, it's, it's subject to cross-border RMB fund flow quotas and restrictions on the type of wealth management products that are available. Um, but, you know, the economic development of the GBA is a priority in China uh, as it seeks to turn this area into a growth engine. So we expect the Chinese regulators to be looking at the quotas and the product eligibility requirements of Wealth Management Connect in, in the near future. And that would further reduce barriers to cross-border distribution of, of these types of wealth products um, within the two areas. And the other point is the, the continuing expansion of the, the MRF network that I talked about previously to try and strengthen uh, Hong Kong's position as a wealth management hub in Asia. Just very recently, there's been another MRF arrangement with Thailand, so just a couple of weeks ago in, in mid-November. So we expected a positive development in both the WMC and the MRF schemes um, to further lead sort of room for growth in the fund distribution space in, in Hong Kong in 2023 and beyond. Mm. Well, I can't. I can't help but um, pick up on uh, the passporting there. So, from from Australia's angle, the the Asian Region Funds passport is um, uh, is the scheme that we're um, we've got very much front of mind. And the, just by way of recap, so the Asian Region Funds passport members—that's Australia, Japan, New Zealand, uh, Republic of Korea, and Thailand. And and so if I were to pick something for next year, um, I would put some money on um, potentially a renewed focus on the RFP. Um, I say this because we we have had the first um, uh, fund passport registered under that scheme, which was um, which is actually earlier this year. Uh, New Zealand Financial Markets Authority registered a regulated CIS based in New Zealand as a passport fund. And so um, that was effectively the first uh, passport granted under the RFP regime in the world. So, so some positive um, uh, 
some positive news for the scheme in that sense. And, you know, that could could then be the start of some momentum into that for, for potentially next year. Um, more generally, in terms of asset focus, um, away from particular schemes and structures, there's been obviously a, a, quite a lot um, going on in the crypto space, and another big thematic is energy transition. As to as to how those those two ebb and flow, um, I think a, a, a pivoting into energy transition would likely be on the mind of a lot of managers looking to access the um, the institutional capital coming out of the superannuation funds in Australia. Um, the 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 focus to um, to, to move into clean energy investments will be um, top of mind, certainly for those. Um, crypto being more in the retail, retail land, um, we did see a, a, a flurry at the beginning of the year of uh, crypto-orientated listed funds in Australia, some of whom um, relied on offshore expertise to, to set that up. Um, question mark possibly over um, where that heads into 2023, as with all these things, likely to be underpinned by um, asset prices and, and, and market positioning. And, and I guess just finally, back to the top, really, hopefully some greater clarity on, on the licensing framework as we go through the course of next year in Australia. So I think that, um, that brings us to the end of the Australia and Hong Kong piece. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, John. My name is Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge at Norton Rose Fulbright. And for the next couple of sections of this podcast, we're going to focus on Europe and the United Kingdom. And to start with, we're going to look at Luxembourg. And I'm delighted to be joined by Claire Gilbert, a financial services partner in our Luxembourg office. Claire, it's great to have you here and to get your thoughts and insights on cross-border fund distribution. And as was the case with Australia and Hong Kong's contribution a moment ago, we're going to run through five topics. The first topic is trends and industry developments. And Claire, what trends or industry developments are you seeing in your jurisdiction as regards the cross-border distribution of funds? Well, thanks, Simon. Um, well, Luxembourg is uh, one of the key jurisdictions when it comes to uh, fund distribution, uh, both in, in Europe and across the world. Um, so I think we have a good insight of what's going on and, and where we are heading to. Uh, I would say the major trends uh, in, in Lux and, and probably that we see uh, uh, elsewhere um, when it comes to cross-border distribution of funds derived uh, from the development of the alternative investment fund products generally. Um, you know, I, Luxembourg has positioned itself as a key jurisdiction for, for AIS with the implementation of FMD, uh, but it was already for a long time a key jurisdiction for usage. So we have a good experience on how to uh, distribute funds on a cross-border basis. And so it's not only about distributing in Luxembourg, uh, and I would say it's more about distributing Luxembourg funds elsewhere. Uh, this development uh, on the alternative uh, investment fund side uh, continues with the implementation uh, more recently of other related EU frameworks, such as 
um, the one facilitating the cross-border distribution of funds, which is the topic today, but also on uh, sustainable finance disclosures, um, which are actually all linked uh, with each other. Among uh, the trends I want to mention and the one I, I want to select here, um, I would first uh, mention the one of the, the continuous higher demand for AIF products. Uh, with a variety of uh, underlying asset classes um, and a variety of investor types. Uh, this shows a democratization of the alternative investment space. Uh, this space is becoming really an alternative to the traditional uh, more liquid investments and the traditional saving schemes uh, that we, we were seeing. Uh, and this contributes also to, to financing the, the real economy, which is one of the key focus of uh, the, the regulators and the legislators uh, uh, in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, this trend leads to another trend, which is a growing uh, fund infrastructure in Luxembourg, because to service uh, all, all the, these funds and uh, the various requirements uh, around the funds which are growing, uh, Luxembourg has also positioned itself as a as a key jurisdiction for lux for, for fund servicing. Um, and so in Luxembourg, we either have uh, uh, own fund managers being established with an own authorization and staff on the ground, and we actually see more and more uh, staff uh, being uh, um, relocated to Luxembourg, and in particular to conduct marketing activities uh, uh, throughout uh, Europe, and, and that is especially since Brexit. But we also see a large choice of service providers um, who, uh, who provide within their service offer the management of uh, the funds and also give access to their marketing passports. Um, within that offer, we see that they have like an initial offer for pre-marketing services with minimum engagement, um, but then also a larger offer for conducting the actual marketing activity for their clients. Uh, and then there are different setups for this uh, conduct of the marketing activity, which is tailored to the organization of the client. And I would finish with another uh, last trend, uh, which is uh, ESG, because I cannot talk about trends without talking about ESG. Um, and uh, the, the, the regulators have added SFDR disclosures as part of the mandatory pre-investment disclosures required under AFMD. And by doing that, uh, they have really forced the industry uh, in positioning themselves, positioning their products from an ESG perspective, um, and then also uh, being accountable towards their investors in that respect. Thanks, Claire. That's very interesting, also very comprehensive. Uh, if we could now move on to our second topic, which concerns regulation. Uh, Claire, can you tell us what you see as the top one or two regulatory issues impacting the cross-border distribution of funds in your jurisdiction? Well, I would say that there is uh, a couple of challenges coming with each trend that I have just mentioned. Um, in relation to the democratization of alternative investment fund product, um, products, one issue is 
that the current framework, regulatory and legislative framework, um, for the cross-border distribution of those funds um, is not adapted to retail investors. So we have the notion in those regulations to the professional clients um, as defined under MIFID, um, but um, the products are not uh, in their initial uh, setup or initial thinking of the regulators. They are not uh, targeting retail investors. Uh, this is because uh, mainly of the uh, illiquid um, illiquid uh, status of the asset classes of those funds, uh, also having a higher risk for the end investors. So the principle is that the EU FMD marketing passport is available for marketing to professional investors only. We do see some ex exceptions on a country by country basis, but I would say the really the common rule is that the passports be used only to market to professional investors. Um, and then outside of the passport, um, the rule is that each country can give access uh, to uh, the distribution in their country under the national private placement regime. And each country can allow uh, private placement or not. And each country, when they allow private placement, can set their own conditions to that. So clearly, there is a need uh, for harmonization in that respect. Uh, the good news is that there, there is some work being done on those uh, challenges, uh, especially with the revision of the ELTIF regime. Um, and also with discussions around introducing a notion of semi-professional investors uh, in the revision uh, as part of the discussions in the revision of the AFMT. Now, regarding the conduct of the marketing activity itself, um, and this is uh, a challenge we see really in Luxembourg, especially because um, uh, a client relations team, marketing teams are not uh, predominantly based in Luxembourg. Uh, the challenges are around uh, to whom belong the marketing passport, who can actually conduct the marketing activity under the passport, from where uh, can they conduct the marketing activity. Um, and, and there are gray areas around those questions. Um, and definitely the fact that non-EU AFMs uh, uh, be excluded from uh, the, the the regime, and also following Brexit, those uh, those uh, factors do not help getting answers. Uh, and finally, on the the ESG point I mentioned um, here as well, although there is um, a, an initial willingness to harmonize uh, the requirements, uh, obviously we we currently still see some. Um, discrepancies uh, in the application of the disclosure requirements when marketing a product in different jurisdictions. Thanks, Claire. That's really useful. Our third topic was going to cover the important issue of marketing, but you've already spoken a lot about that. Um, but there was just one or two things I just wanted to pick up with you. Um, one was the sort of notification process and also um, pre-marketing. I wondered if you could just say a few words about these. Yes, sure. Um, sure. So as, as I uh, mentioned before, 
marketing uh, in Luxembourg and, and generally in the EU, but here I'm focusing really on Luxembourg, uh, can be done either to the, 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 the passport, the EU passport under FMD or, or MIFID, or uh, via private placement regimes. In Luxembourg, in both cases, there is uh, a notification process applicable. The first regime uh, is really relevant for EU managers, while the second one is more relevant for non-EU managers. Um, on the, um, the AFMD process uh, and the notification process, the uh, notification needs to be done with the local regulator, which is then responsible for notifying the various uh, other regulators where the manager wants to go market. Since uh, the implementation of a framework on cross-border distribution of funds, um, there is now a, a, a differentiation between the pre-marketing and the marketing, which was not present uh, beforehand. Um, now, when we are in a pre-marketing phase, there is also an additional notification to be made um, and that is then followed by the actual marketing notification that we all knew already. The key like line uh, between pre-marketing and marketing is really around whether there is a possibility to subscribe uh, for units in the relevant fund. Uh, if not, then we would be still in pre-marketing if yes, then we are entering the marketing phase. Uh, those, uh, the framework I just talked about also has some uh, rules around an harmonization around marketing documents, what is to be uh, inserted in those documents, uh, how to present marketing information to investors, uh, the uh, right of regulators to uh, review and inspect the documents, Etc. And there are also some other rules around harmonization of uh, the marketing, pre-marketing fees, uh, notification process, denotification process, database for uh, getting information, uh, list of funds, etc. So clearly, we are getting into a more sophisticated uh, marketing area again with the aim of harmonization. Thanks, Claire. Um, our fourth topic concerns ESG, which is critical in many jurisdictions nowadays and is a key regulatory issue. Now, I know you've already touched on, on ESG in places, uh, but just for this section, could you just cover what ESG considerations need to be taken into account when marketing funds cross-border? Yes, sure, indeed. So in, in uh, late 2019, um, the EU Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation called SFDR came into force. And these uh, introduced uh, new environmental, social and governance disclosure obligations on, among others, managers and their funds. So this applies um, technically to uh, authorized managers, MIFID firms uh, to usage and uh, alternative investment funds. In practice, please note that in Luxembourg, uh, the CSSF also requires um, uh, the, the disclosures to be provided for products 
which do not have an authorized manager, for example, registered AFMs, and also requires certain um, obligations at the level of those registered AFMs, even though um, in practice uh, the regulation itself does not expressly mention those uh, setups. So I thought it, it is important to specify that for Luxembourg. What are the requirements and what is uh, the link with the cross-border distribution of funds? There are um, product level disclosures regarding the qualification of the fund uh, when it comes to ESG. So whether the fund promotes ESG uh, features or has ESG features as part of its investment objectives or not. And then depending on that qualification, there are different information to provide. SFDR is actually uh, to be read in conjunction with the taxonomy regulation that uh, followed it. And then there are uh, manager level uh, requirements, uh, both a disclosure requirements, but then also reporting requirements, including when it comes to the funds under management. The link with the cross-border distribution of those funds is that uh, SFDR has um, required that certain disclosures be made under uh, the disclosures to be made uh, pursuant to AFMD. So before investors invest in an AIF, and same on the on the the, the usage side. And so uh, in practice, um, we see that as I mentioned before, local regulators will um, scrutinize the disclosures that are being made when a product is being uh, offered, marketing, distributed in their uh, country. And as my final question, it sort of relates to horizon scanning, and it's simply this. Uh, what do you think 2023 holds for the cross-border distribution of funds in Luxembourg? Well, I do hope that uh, the trends I mentioned will uh, will get more concrete uh, and that the challenges that come with them uh, will will be somehow addressed by uh, the regulators and um, and uh, and the legislators. Uh, but I do uh, if I would pick one, I do think that uh, the retailization of alternative products is really a key topic to watch. Okay, thanks, Claire. That's very helpful sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, thanks, Simon. We now move to Germany, where Carolina Hergestreuter and Uta Brunner, both from our Frankfurt office, will take us through the topics. Uta, over to you. Okay, thanks, Simon. So, Caroline, what trends or industry developments are you seeing in our jurisdiction, Germany, as regards the cross-border distribution of funds? Well, over the last years, we saw increasing activities regarding the cross-border distribution of funds from Germany into other, especially European countries. Cross-border distribution from third countries into Germany is still very relevant, but became more difficult in the light of the European regulation, restricting private placement activities and reverse solicitation. Moreover, 
AIFs may only benefit from the European passport to the extent envisaged customers qualify as professionals or as the case may be semi-professional investors. Besides the regulation applying to the different types of investment funds, USITs or AIFs, the public distribution of funds requires a respective term license. Since the process to gain such a license is somehow burdensome and expensive, there are providers of so-called liability rules allowing third parties to distribute their products using their license. Um, but what do you see as a top one or two regulatory issues impacting cross-border funds distribution? We discussed it. Yeah, in my view, it is still the balance between the passive freedom to provide services, which means the acting upon reverse solicitation on the one hand and active marketing um, and the regulations applicable, applicable to marketing activities, because this may cause issues under German law. And under German law or in, in the German market, um, this is in particular important for institutional investors, because um, for institutional investors, the passive freedom to provide services is an important concept because big investors and their external service providers often actively approach um, German fund companies, KVGs, which are called master KVGs. And these KVGs provide infrastructure and organizational setup um, for establishing a uh, bespoke special fund, an AIF. Um, and this often for a single investor, which is then the fund managed by a third-party asset manager selected by the investor. And already the pre-marketing regime has caused some issues here. Um, the pre-marketing regime requires notification to the regulator when approaching potential investors with an idea for a fund structure. And in the above constellation of a big investor taking an active step, it has not been fully clear who must give the notification, on whose behalf, and what at what exact stage of the process, if at all. However, in uh, the recent past, BaFin has given um, some guidance here. And now what will be interesting in the future are the further considerations of ESMA and the EU com Commission to monitor the volume of investments made by way of reverse solicitation. And should they really implement a further reporting obligation or things like that, this may cause additional efforts. Um, but as regarding market, marketing in general, um, foreign offerers of German um, of funds should take care to monitor the quality of their marketing initiatives because marketing of funds in Germany can become quite complex as the regulator has published additional guidance on marketing um, and this is unfortunately not always fully consistent with level one and level two legislation on a European basis but goes beyond that. Yeah. Can you say maybe a few words more regarding marketing rules in, in Germany? Yeah. Um, besides the um, fund regulation, including the ESMA guideline on, on marketing, distributors um, who are financial services providers also have to comply with the MIFID regulations. And there is additional guidance of BaFin in its so-called um, MRCOM, Minimum Requirements for the Compliance Function, which contain further details as regards the MIFID rules. 
Um, and the provisions do not always match to the requirements of the ESMA um, guidelines for fund marketing. So there are minor gaps which still have to be considered. And also, taking into consideration the German Act Against Unfair Competition and, in particular, really numerous case law based on that, um, has to be considered and thus marketing in Germany can become quite tricky and less harmonized than you might expect. In particular, the German courts and the regulator have really high expectations as to fair and non-misleading marketing um, in the area of sustainability and environmental buzzwords or statements. And this has also been in the focus of the German consumer protection organizations. And on top of that, there is, of course, the specific ESG considerations that need to be taken into account when marketing funds on a cross-border basis. What do you think, Caroline, are the most important issues there? Distributing funds in Germany requires to be aware of the relevant sustainability regulation, that's clear. Even if the investment fund manager himself or the fund is not subject to the European ESG regulation, the rules will apply to distributors of financial instruments and they will have an impact on the product and the product transparency with regard to ESG. Moreover, while doing marketing, the risk of being accused for greenwashing, as you already said, if not being transparent and uh, giving the correct and complete information to the investor has to be taken into account. The discussion has become more relevant in the light of the actual cases on greenwashing real well, and is also reflected in the upcoming change of the European regulation on unfair trading practices. Okay, and what do you think will the next year, 2023, hold for the cross-border distribution of funds? Yeah, well, the ongoing focus on sustainability and consumer protection uh, our regulator just uh, issued a paper on yesterday in Germany, will further impact distribution activities of non-German market participants. However, the appetite for suitable investments still providing the required return is huge, especially looking at professional investors. And we therefore believe that cross-border distribution activities will not really decrease and service providers um, of business solutions, like the before mentioned uh, liability rules, will benefit from this trend. And Ute, just get back to my point on ESG and the regulation, it is very important to be aware of all the regulation and um, there is uh, also legal tech and other tech tools which can help, for example, as our tool on um, collaborative engagement of shareholders, um, which helps to make sure that you comply with the restrictions around the world when, um, when doing collaborative engagement with other market participants in the light of ESG um, requirements. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks, Uta. That concludes the German section. In this part of the podcast, we move on to the United Kingdom. And for that, I'm joined by Joshua Todd, a partner in our funds team in London, and also Ilian Petrov, an associate in our financial services team in London. Josh, if I could turn to you first, um, what trends or industry developments are you seeing in your jurisdiction as regards the cross-border distribution of funds? I would highlight two key regulatory developments in the UK. 
uh, both illustrating the emerging divergence between the UK and EU regulatory frameworks. The first concerns the funds marketing regime and EEA rules regarding pre-marketing of alternative investment funds. These rules came in under the EU cross-border distribution of funds directive, which of course does not apply to the UK. The significance of the division between marketing and pre-marketing is broadly the commencement of marketing triggers the imposition of AFIM directive compliance obligations on an AFIM. Different markets and regulators across the EEA therefore develop differing conceptions of promotional activities that would not be deemed to constitute marketing. In a bid to harmonize different treatment of pre-marketing in the EU, this directive adopted a restrictive definition of pre-marketing, which is likely to catch almost any discussion between a manager and an investor regarding a new fund, which in turn triggers a notification obligation to the relevant regulator. In contrast, the FCA's pre-CBDF directive guidance on pre-marketing continues to apply in the UK, which essentially holds that discussions between manager and investor regarding draft fund documentation is not marketing. It is therefore now easier for an EU AFE to pre-market in the UK than in the EEA. The second development that I would highlight is the UK overseas funds regime, which is designed to allow non-UK retail funds and money market funds to be marketed in the UK to retail investors on the basis of an equivalency assessment by the FCA, i.e. an assessment to the effect that a foreign jurisdiction and fund type provide an equivalent level of protection as that enjoyed by an equivalent form of UK authorization fund. Then is there, there is then a registration process for the qualifying overseas funds with the FCA. While the majority of the OFR provisions in the Financial Services Act 2021 are now in force, and the government has commenced its equivalent assessment of the EU and EEA, HM Treasury has not yet made any equivalency decisions, and the FCA has yet to publish details about how the regime will work in practice. Thanks, Josh. Now, let's move on to our second topic, which concerns regulation. Elian, can you tell us what you see as the top one or two regulatory issues impacting cross-border funds distribution? Absolutely. So when thinking about the distribution and marketing of non-UK funds into the UK, especially in a retail context, the biggest issue has to be the loss of the EU marketing passport and the current lack of a practical recognition regime for overseas funds. See, for professional funds, while the loss of the um, EU marketing passport has caused an inconvenience for fund managers looking to market EU funds into the UK, they do have the benefit of the UK's national private placement regime, which is well established and utilized. The same, unfortunately, cannot be said for retail funds. The national private placement regime is really designed for marketing to professional investors. And while the FCA has updated their definition of alternative investment fund to exclude only UK retail funds, so thereby allowing for the notification of non-UK retail funds under the national private placement regime, there are various other restrictions and requirements, and 
here I'm thinking of things like the UK financial promotion regime and the restrictions on the promotion of non-mainstream code investments under COPS 4.12 of the FCA handbook that managers need to consider and ensure compliance with. The other currently available uh, route for non-UK retail funds looking to market in the UK is to apply for recognition under Section 272 of FISMA. Now, this route is costly and onerous for many reasons and therefore is almost never used. So the UK government has sought to address this issue with the introduction of a new overseas funds regime, the OFR, which allows investment uh, funds domiciled overseas to be sold to UK investors. However, while the majority of the OFR provisions in the Financial Services Act 2021 are now in force, and the government has commenced its equivalent assessment of the EU and EA under the OFR, HM Treasury has not yet made any equivalence decisions, and the FCA is also yet to publish details about how the OFR will work in practice. So unfortunately, as of right now, this route is not yet available for any non-UK funds. Um, and uh, there isn't really an indication as to when it might be. Okay, Ilian, and let's turn now to the third topic, uh, which covers the issue of marketing. And can you say a few words regarding the fund marketing rules in the UK? Sure, Simon, uh, no problem. So in the context of marketing to professional investors by non-UK managers, the rules differ depending on whether you are a small or above threshold manager. So a small manager is one with um, either assets under management of, uh, of under 500 million euros in total. And yes, we did retain the euro uh, threshold. Uh, where the portfolio consists of funds that are unleveraged and have no redemption rights that are exercisable during a period of five years following the date of the initial investment uh, in each of the funds, or uh, does not exceed 100 million euros in total in all other cases. And this is including um, any assets acquired through the use of leverage. And uh, so that's a small manager. And an above threshold manager is simply one who is not a small manager. Now, under the UK's national private placement regime, and in both cases, so whether you have a small or an above threshold, a non-UK manager wishing to market non-UK funds to UK professional investors must submit a written notification to the FCA prior to marketing the fund uh, within the meaning of the UK AIFMD. And marketing in this context has uh, a specific meaning, and that is the making of a direct or indirect offering or placement of units or shares uh, by a fund manager to an investor that is domiciled or with a registered office here in the UK or in Gibraltar, or whenever another person makes such an offering or a placement at the initiative of or on behalf of the manager. So as such, even though the UK has not implemented the cross-border distribution of funds regime that Europe has, any activity that kind of falls short of this, for example, promotional presentations or Pathfinder version, versions of a private placement memorandum, you know, provided that of course such documents 
can't be used by a potential investor to invest in the fund will count as pre-marketing, you know, quote unquote pre-marketing, and therefore will not uh, be subject to a marketing notification under the national private placement regime. You know, however, I think um, we still need to keep in mind that any pre-marketing promotional activity must comply with UK private placement rules, including the uh, UK financial promotion regime, and where relevant, the restrictions on the promotion of unregulated collective investment schemes. And so this may require the taking of legal advice in order to structure the promotional activities so that they fall within applicable exclusions. Now, with regards to the actual marketing rules, while there are no documents that need to be submitted with the FCA uh, notification, uh, an above threshold manager, so a larger one, must include a, a statement confirming, amongst various other things, that the manager complies with the requirements in sections 3.2, 3.3, and 3.4 of the investment fund source book, as so far as those provisions are relevant to the manager and to the funds to be marketed. Um, those sections of the investment fund source book contain various requirements in relation to the disclosure of prior information to investors, the provision and content of annual reports, and reporting obligations to the FCA. For small managers, the notification requirements are less extensive and only require the manager to provide information on, again, among other things, the main instruments in which the manager trades and the principal exposure and the most important concentrations of the funds it manages. Uh, as for when a manager can start marketing, uh, there is no statutory timeframe for approval of the notification. And so managers can start marketing immediately following the submission of the notification. Thanks, Ilian. Uh, let's turn now to our next topic, which concerns ESGA. Uh, could you talk us through any ESG considerations that need to be taken into account when marketing funds cross border? So currently there are no UK ESG considerations they, that apply to non-UK funds per se. While there are current applicable rules and guidance regarding the disclosure of uh, climate-related financial information, and this is in accordance with the recommendations and the recommended disclosures of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, so TCFD, uh, and, and, and these can be found um, in the ESG uh, source book of the FCA handbook. Uh, and in addition to that, the FCA is currently consulting on uh, sustainability disclosure requirements and investment labels. So this is the UK's version of the EU's SFDR. Um, but within these, these uh, current applicable rules and guidance and, and the proposed uh, upcoming rules, you know, um, the, the application, the scope of application of them only really apply to UK in-scope firms. So in this sense, a UK authorized, uh, UK authorized firms are required to comply with the current ESG source book and subject to the outcome of the FCA's consultation will be required to comply with the new proposed uh, SDR um, requirements regardless of whether the funds they manage are UK or non-UK funds. However, these rules are not currently applicable 
to non-UK managers marketing non-UK funds under the national private placement regime. The FCA have stated uh, in, in the current consultation that they want retail investors to be able to trust all products offered in the UK and that overseas funds form an important part of the overall regime. And so they have confirmed that they do intend to follow with a separate consultation in due course on how the proposals in the current consultation may be applied in respect of overseas funds in the future. Uh, thanks, Ilian. And for my final question, can I turn back to you, please, Josh? What do you think 2023 holds for the cross-border distribution of funds? Clearly, the most important development will be in the ESG realm, and in particular, the UK's new sustainable disclosure requirements, um, which Ilian referred to earlier. On the, on the marketing side of things, I would expect managers and distributors to look to offer increased access to retail investors to products that have been traditionally reserved from a regulatory perspective, at least, to professional investors. So it will be interesting to see how the FCA and other authorities react to these pressures, given their criticism of mis-selling by the funds industry in the past. Thanks, Josh. That's very well made. That concludes the UK section of the podcast. In this part of the podcast, we move to the United States, where I'm joined by two of our New York partners, Andrew Lom and Stephen Howard, who will cover respectively private and public funds. Perhaps I could start with you, Andrew, on your thoughts on the trends and industry developments you are seeing in the private fund sector. Sure. Thank you, Simon. So I guess there's a lot of interest from non-U.S. fund managers to raise money in the U.S. because it's seen as such a huge market. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of inbound interest. Uh, and, and as we'll get to in some of the later questions, you know, it, it really depends on what the manager's profile is in the U.S. from a regulatory standpoint, much more so than the actual act of distribution or fundraising when you're talking about private funds. Um, we also continue to hear from U.S.-based managers that they're worried about AIFMD and some of the fundraising regimes in other countries when they're trying to go sell their products outside of the US. That, that's just a continuing theme that we've heard now for years and years. And Steve, from a public perspective? Thank you, Simon. From a public perspective, there has been an astounding growth uh, in the United States and globally uh, of public funds. Um, despite the pandemic, uh, funds grew at a tear. Uh, this is largely attributable to uh, uh, pension assets as they continue to increase. There are other factors which have driven it, but to give you a sense of the astounding growth, uh, the U.S. now has over $30 trillion of assets under management in public funds. Um, uh, 20 years ago, it was less than a trillion. So in 20 years, it's grown uh, to a level of 30 trillion, and all projections indicate enormous continued growth. Globally, there's an additional 20 trillion in Europe and Asia, 
uh, in public funds for a total worldwide of uh, 50 trillion. So it's an astoundingly large market. It's much bigger than the uh, uh, aggregate of uh, banks or for that matter, insurance companies or banks and insurance companies together. And uh, what that means for cross-border fund distribution is that distribution is played out in large scale and medium scale M&A transactions uh, by banks, uh, money managers, and insurance companies around the world. And uh, we have uh, uh, represented a number of, uh, uh, in particular, banks in their acquisitions, and in some instances, their sales of uh, asset managers. Uh, we, uh, last year, uh, represented the Bank of Montreal in its sale of about $130 billion of assets under management, largely in the US and Europe, but also in Asia. Um, and uh, it was a sale to a US manager uh, called Ameriprise, which is uh, in the top 20 uh, world uh, managers. Um, and they're inching to get above a trillion, and they will in 2023. 20, uh, but they'll do it not by um, sales of individual funds, they'll do it by acquiring uh, funds uh, in different parts of the world. Thanks, Steve. Uh, let's move now on to our, our second uh, question. And again, Andrew, if I can start with you from a, a private funds perspective. Uh, the question concerns regulation. Can you tell us what you see as the top one or two regulatory issues impacting the cross-border funds distribution? Yeah, I, I think there's one that really stands out as the biggest, and that's when funds and fund managers use placement agents, in particular placement agents who are not registered with the SEC. And whenever you're paying someone to raise money or to sell securities, which interests in a fund would be, that person needs to be registered generally with the SEC if you're facing a US investor, um, or indeed even if the fund is ends up setting up um, a US feeder, for example, that's a US entity, which is a US seller. And the funny thing is, you know, if the US feeder happens to take an investor who's outside the US, that feeder's presence in the US triggers the US broker-dealer rules as much as a non-US fund would trigger them if it pays a placement agent to source US investors. And, and the SEC um, over the years kinds of has this ebb and flow of their enforcement views on what we call unregistered finders, but we're in a bit of an uptick now on the enforcement of that. So that's something that's very important to keep in mind to vet your placement agents and make sure that they have the right licenses for the activities that they're doing. Thanks, Andrew. Steve, from a public funds perspective? In the public fund context, uh, there uh, continues to be the concerns that Andrew's just uh, referenced uh, with regard to the uh, solicitation agents, uh, the brokers who are selling through these uh, large platforms. So I would echo uh, the concern in the public fund context. You have to be very careful about uh, who the intermediaries are and do they have the proper uh, credentials? Are they properly licensed uh, with FINRA uh, and the SEC? Uh, in addition, I'd say in the last two years, 
a concern that uh, hadn't been uh, quite at the level that it is now is monitoring and supervising uh, and enforcing, in some cases, the prohibitions uh, on uh, investments by Russian oligarchs. Uh, what with the war in Ukraine uh, continuing on, I guess now for its ninth month, um, uh, and the sanctions uh, uh, being applied uh, uh, where uh, uh, these investments are made, it's becoming clear that um, uh, many of the oligarchs are investing through uh, shell entities, as has been the past with other uh, embargoes and prohibitions, but even at a more active level, and in particular industries, particularly high-tech industries like uh, military technology and uh, space uh, technology. And uh, it's come up in our practice in several instances uh, in uh, uh, that money uh, seeking to be invested in, in, in public and private funds. Uh, so that continues to be uh, a, a newer concern, but uh, an ever-present concern and a challenge for those who have to uh, uh, track through uh, these many, many layers of uh, corporate ownership to uh, see who the ultimate uh, uh, beneficial owners are of these investment vehicles. Thanks, Steve. Uh, let's just stay with regulation for a moment. Uh, and Andrew, let's keep the same order. Let's have private funds go first. Uh, can you say a few words regarding the fund marketing rules? Yeah, so the marketing rules themselves are relatively straightforward in that you can do a private placement or you can even have a website as long as you're selling to accredited investors. And depending on the size of the fund, there may also be a requirement that all of the investors are qualified purchasers to have the fund be a private fund and not have to deal with all of the requirements that Steve's been talking about. The real key is whether the fund manager is appropriately registered with the SEC based on the AUM that is sourced from the US. So um, that, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road is on the manager side, much more so than the, the effectively you know, ticking box uh, exercise on the fun side. Uh, yeah, I would I would just add that um, if the uh, non-U.S. advisor uh, does not have an office in the U.S. from which it manages money, that gives the non-U.S. advisor a lot more freedom in terms of not having to deal with uh, the rules that uh, Andrew was just referencing. Uh, and uh, 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 if they either inadvertently or sometimes uh, intentionally have an office in the U.S., uh, they may want to think twice about continuing to have that office. And we've had that issue with Canadian advisors who think that because of the close affinity uh, between Canada uh, and the United States that uh, our, our two countries have enjoyed for uh, centuries, right? Um, uh, that happens. And then they understand that because they have an office, which really is not critical to their portfolio management operation, uh, they uh, have to register uh, after they hit 150 million of assets under management. And that's a, an eye opener for them, which, uh, uh, which uh, can be reversed if they, uh, if they uh, close up shop in uh, uh, the US office. Um, 
uh, as Andrew said, that this is largely driven by whether or not the advisor needs to be registered. If it is a registered advisor, and many non-US money managers have uh, registered SEC uh, registered advisors, there is a new rule, a new marketing rule, a relatively new uh, as the last uh, year and a half uh, marketing rule for advisors, uh, which uh, did actually significantly change some of the rules. Um, so as a, for instance, um, again, this is all assuming that the non-US advisor is registered. Uh, it used to be that any registered advisor uh, could not have testimonials. That is, they couldn't uh, hire uh, a famous soccer player or, or in, in one particular case here in the US, a famous football player uh, to uh, sell um, uh, mutual funds. Uh, and um, uh, it was quite strict and the SEC took it seriously. And there were very few instances where any of the large uh, money managers uh, in the US, uh, whether it's uh, BlackRock or Fidelity or Vanguard, wouldn't hire um, uh, famous individuals uh, to sell. And now it's permissible. Uh, you do have to state what the compensation is that the advisor is paying that uh, famous person for their testimonial, but uh, uh, in terms of new trends, I think we're gonna see a lot more um, uh, famous people uh, selling uh, public funds in the US. Um, uh, and uh, there'll be disclaimers on television ads and, and in uh, written ads, uh, but uh, which will disclose the compensation arrangements. But uh, uh, I, think, I think that that will be a new trend. Uh, that rule is rule 20641. That's just the nomenclature of the rule. Uh, and uh, it's uh, fully in effect now. And um, uh, it also uh, requires standardization of uh, investment performance presentations. So for those who are doing the pitch books uh, that again are registered advisors, because this only applies to registered advisors, uh, touching base with um, um, uh, the legal requirements of that uh, new marketing rule is, becomes important. Thanks, Steve. Uh, let's now move on. We've looked at marketing. We now move on to ESG, which is one of the very hot topics um, in financial services and also in the funds arena. Uh, again, starting with you, Andrew, from a private funds perspective, are there any ESG considerations that need to be taken into account when marketing funds cross border? So there's no specific rule in the US on ESG for private funds. And the fallback position then is like with other disclosures, do what you say you will do and disclose what you're doing. Uh, and I think the upshot of that is there have been some issues of greenwashing and similar things, uh, especially in the last few years. Um, but the SEC is a bit behind the rest of the world in its views on ESG and ESG disclosures. And we're seeing that um, play out in, in some um, developments on public company reporting. And there's a proposed rule for public funds, um, but that has not been adopted yet. And I think there's still an evolution to be seen in the SEC's views on all of this. And so, you know, the main point is if the fund 
purports to have an ESG type strategy, it should say so, and it should follow what it says it's going to do. And if it's not going to do that, then it should not advertise itself as being an ESG fund. Thanks, Andrew. Well made point. Steve? Uh, exactly. Andrew has it uh, exactly right. It's a great cautionary. It's such a popular um, uh, concept these days that things that are pretty farly uh, removed from uh, anything having to do with the environment get branded ESG. And uh, um, the SEC uh, is, is only going to come in uh, when those statements are, in, in, from what I can see, extreme. Uh, but they will come in. And I've had a client that uh, has uh, been uh, subject to an enforcement proceeding by the SEC. So Andrew's absolutely right. They will take note. You need to do what you say and say what you do. Um, and uh, uh, it, 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 so it's, uh, despite the fact that the US does not have a rule for ESG, it isn't defined, uh, let alone regulated as such formally uh, at this point. Uh, and again, Andrew is absolutely right. The US is, I think, considerably behind uh, Europe for sure. Um, uh, uh, advisors uh, have to be careful. They just, they, they have to be careful. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, the SEC uh, will take note and uh, as evidenced by my client, we'll start an enforcement proceeding. Thanks, Steve. And my final question um, relates to horizon scanning. Um, to put you both on the spot, what do you think 2023 holds for the cross-border distribution of funds? Andrew, from a private funds perspective? Yeah, so I think some further evolution on, on ESG, as uh, we mentioned. I think also, you know, whenever you are in or hopefully in 2023 coming out of a market downturn, there's usually some kind of increased demand from lower ends um, of the, the private fund spectrum or higher ends of the retail spectrum for alternative types of investments. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's, there's this blurry line, you know, it's been called liquid alts, it's been called other things over the years, but I expect there will be an increased market demand by investors and increased output by fund providers um, in private and, and probably also in public funds for those kinds of strategies as investors you know look to have something that would have performed or in theory should have performed differently in 2022. Thanks Andrew. Steve? The first major trend that uh, I've uh, seen and uh, will continue to play out in 2023 harkens back to my first observations and that's M&A uh, in uh, um, this uh, business sector, there'll, there'll continue to be a tremendous amount of M&A uh, among large money managers, whether they're banks or money standalone money managers or insurance companies uh, that uh, have money management uh, uh, divisions. Uh, that's on a tear. Particularly, I, I suspect that there'll be a lot of 
activity in Asia, because when you look at the uh, tables, Asia, interestingly, is falling very far behind uh, the US in the first instance in Europe in terms of the size of assets under management. There is not an Asian uh, money manager in the top 50 uh, these days. So it does not have a trillion dollar. It, it has no members in the trillionaires club of money managers of which in the top 10, uh, uh, eight are US um, uh, leading with uh, BlackRock uh, and uh, the two European uh, uh, asset managers are Allianz and uh, uh, Credit Agricole. So uh, the, the US is pulling away from the rest of the world in terms of these huge aggregations of money management. Um, so uh, that'll continue, that'll continue. Second observation is uh, there aren't gonna be many IPOs uh, for public funds to be investing in uh, this year. 2023, they're just aren't. Uh, and the valuations are going to be a lot lower. Uh, these very, very high valuations for fintech companies, uh, uh, that, that, that whole uh, trend has been uh, arrested. Um, and then in terms of new products, uh, it's interesting. Uh, we're entering a very fascinating period in uh, capital formation, I think, um, uh, with regard to uh, space and the privatization of space transport. And as just being a, someone who's had a childhood fascination with space, I find it fascinating. But uh, the privatization of space transport and, te uh, and technologies that are related to it uh, is on a tear uh, in uh, public funds uh, and, uh, and private funds, partly related to defense industry, but partly um, uh, telecommunications with satellites and, and uh, alike, uh, and uh, uh, very, very interesting uh, development, which will play out over the next decade for sure. Asset protection funds because of uh, the impending recession. Um, there'll continue to be more ETFs. The largest of the large are just pumping out ETFs, exchange traded funds uh, uh, on a tear. Uh, and uh, less actively managed funds, uh, that, that uh, converse trend is going to continue on. Um, more venture capital related to the fintech developments. Uh, and I just uh, uh, end on a note saying when I began my career uh, decades ago, uh, I had the privilege to work with uh, uh, the John Hancock Life Insurance Company, one of the granddaddies of insurance companies in New England and organized, uh, it was a private fund, the first venture capital private fund, and it had had a total of $149 million of assets under management. Now that's, you know, uh, you, know you, you see investments of that size and much bigger. Uh, the biggest venture capital uh, group uh, in the world now is General Atlantic, who I have advised from time to time. And they're, they're at uh, 31 billion. <laughs> so in that time frame, we've gone from 149 million uh, to 31 uh, billion, uh, quite, quite a leap. Uh, maybe a final observation uh, uh, is uh, uh, there'll be more health tech uh, uh, funds uh, in the, in the uh, public sphere. And that's largely because of the pandemic, because so much was done remotely there have been just a plethora of apps and related technologies 
that can be applied remotely. Uh, and uh, that as a sector, a subsector of healthcare is booming. So uh, health tech uh, as a kind of a fallout development from the pandemic uh, is uh, growing in leaps and bounds. And it's interesting because I think it's tied to the very slow but persistent collapse of the health healthcare system in the United States. In fact, it, it's over time being replaced by these uh, health tech technologies. So I'll end on that. Thanks, Steve. Um, very interesting. Also, thank you to you, Andrew, for your very insightful answers to these questions. That concludes the US section of the podcast. In this section of the podcast, I'm very pleased to be joined by Andre Abouad, a off-council from our Dubai office, and he's going to take us through developments in the UAE. Andre, it's great to have you with us today. And as my first question, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about the trends and industry developments you're seeing in your jurisdiction as regards the cross-border distribution of funds? Thank you, Simon. In terms of trends, we're seeing a lot of uh, crypto, PE, and VC funds being offered to UAE investors. This is mainly done on a private placement basis. Uh, Ireland and Luxembourg ETFs continue to constitute the main local offering to UAE retail investors. And uh, finally, uh, another interesting trend developing is the establishment of PE and VC uh, funds in the two UAE financial free zones uh, to invest in the region mainly in Saudi Arabia. Thanks, Andre. Let, let's now move on to the second topic, which concerns regulation. Could you just tell us what you see as the top one or two regulatory issues impacting the cross-border distribution of funds in your jurisdiction? Yeah, in, in that respect, the main regulatory issue continues to be the overly restrictive GFSA funds regime. Uh, that is because it only allows the FSA regulated firms to offer and promote funds in the GIFC. And even then, uh, this is, uh, you know, subject to very few specific ex exemptions. Uh, and also, uh, more recently, there is now a prohibition for uh, offering foreign crypto funds in the GIFC, which was introduced by the FSA's uh, recent uh, crypto uh, regulations. Okay, thanks, Andre. Um, turning now to the third topic, which covers the important issue of marketing, can you say a few words regarding the marketing rules in your jurisdiction? In fact, when it comes to the UAE, we're talking about three different jurisdictions from a regulatory perspective. So I'll start off with what we call onshore UAE, which is the mainland UAE outside of the two financial free zones. Uh, Cross-border fund distribution there is subject to the uh, regular rules on financial promotions. Uh, this is where you have mostly private placement activity made to institutional or sophisticated investors since that would be subject to an exclusion under the uh, local regulator, as well as, of course, reverse solicitation continues to be a common avenue to making these uh, placements. Uh, next, you have the Abu Dhabi global market, which is the financial fee zone in the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. Uh, Cross-border fund distribution there falls under the regulator's uh, financial promotions regime, to which there are a number of exemptions which uh, uh, foreign distributors tend to take advantage of. And, and finally, in the Dubai International Financial Center, which is the financial free zone in the Emirate of Dubai, as I mentioned just now, uh, cross-border fund distribution continues uh, to be somewhat complicated since 
the regulator there has a bespoke funds marketing uh, regime, which is highly restrictive, uh, only allowing the FSA licensed person to market and offer funds in the DIFC and even makes very limited uh, exemptions available to them. However, we are of the view that providing factual material or information that does not seek to induce subscription would likely be uh, acceptable and would not trigger the DFSA rules. Okay, that's great. And there's a fourth topic. Uh, this concerns ESG, which is critical in so many jurisdictions now. Um, are there any ESG considerations that need to be taken into account when marketing funds cross border? The focus on ESG by all three UAE financial regulators has been growing since 2019 with the establishment of the Sustainable Finance Working Group, and the UAE already has a number of ESG initiatives. However, to date, we've yet to see this translate into regulations which would be relevant for the cross-border marketing of funds into these jurisdictions. Okay, and as my, my final question, uh, which relates to horizon scanning, what do you think 2023 holds for the cross-border distribution of funds? Given the state of the uh, global economy, we expect an increase of interest in private debt funds and private credit funds. Uh, we have no reason to suspect that uh, PE and VC funds activity to, uh, to start to abate in the region. And uh, finally, uh, we think that despite the crypto failures, uh, there may still be interest in distributing crypto funds to uh, UAE investors. Okay, Andre, that's really helpful. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us today. Thank you. My pleasure.